We're in John chapter 18, and today the message is called The War Between Darkness and Light. And I think that's something that we as believers need to realize that we're constantly in. Right from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, the world has been at war between darkness and light, truth and lies. Now, sometimes being a Christian, which is where you are in the light, can be something that can be difficult because we can struggle with wanting that light to actually shine. Uh, I remember one time I worked, or one time when I was working at the school, I knew this one girl, and she was what you called a believer, which is a diehard Justin Bieber fan, and she was so proud of it. She loved being a believer. She was just all about it. She would talk about Justin Bieber forever and ever, amen. But when it came to being a believer in Jesus Christ, that was something she kept more private. So she has posters of Justin Bieber all over her wall, all over her binder, all over her books, but when it comes to Jesus, that was something she felt more ashamed about. And I think as Christians, sometimes it can be tough because people look at us and they say, oh, you're one of those types. You're one of those religious types. You know, I think sometimes the reasons that teenagers leave the church, because a lot of times they do, I've seen so many young people come through the church, they grow up and they graduate and then they leave and they don't come back. What are some different reasons? I think one is sometimes the church can seem overprotective. Um, hey, Brooklyn, on the on this slider where it says earpiece mic, you can turn that down. I just feel like it's so loud. I'm going to like destroy people with my volume. Check, check, check. That's a little bit better. Thanks, babe. So sometimes the church can seem overprotective. Um, it can be like you have to just be this believer who's in this Christian bubble and you shun the rest of the world. I think of Harry Potter. I remember when my sister wanted to read Harry Potter growing up, my parents were like, Aaron, you need to read this because we heard it might make you demon-possessed. And I was like, oh, thanks. I'm the firstborn child, so that means that you are fine with me being possessed, but not my sister Amy, apparently. You know, honestly, the whole Harry Potter craze is so funny to me. Uh, Christians responding to it in this overprotective way. I know so many people. I never read Harry Potter. I never really cared. I watched the movies, but I, I know so many friends who read the books. I don't know one of them who grew up and is like a wizard or a warlock or a witch. Like, I don't, I don't know anybody that happened to. And plus, for all the people who complain about it, like, we watch Disney movies, which are all about magic and sorcery and spells and curses and have the most violent deaths in any children's movie of all time. So many violent, like Ursula, she gets impaled by a ship. Like you're, you're watching that as a kid and you're not thinking about all of her like intestines being like ripped to shreds by a boat. Anyway, not going to get into that. Um, sometimes pastors and Christians like myself can seem judgmental to people who are not Christians. It seems like we're always just pointing out other people's sin. Sometimes churches don't welcome people who struggle with sin and doubt. We make it feel like this exclusive club where it's all about us being perfectionists. In fact, I went on um, a website, which it was just a kind of a discussional website, people asking questions and answering them. And, um, I, I typed in this question, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? And here were some of the responses. Annie Dreams, that's her username, said, honestly, at this point in my life, not many great things come to mind when I hear the word Christian. The first word that comes to mind is hypocrite, which is someone who says one thing but doesn't actually do what they say. Another person said, when I think of Christian, I think of narrow-mindedness, fearful, conservative ideology, impediments to progress, 
interesting. Um, another person said, when I think of the word Christian, I think of my creepy sister. And then someone else responded, what makes her creepy? And he said, she's a religious zealot, always trying to shove her appearance down your throat, which didn't make sense to me. I understand how you shove your religion down someone's throat, but your appearance, like, I think that was a typo. Like, hey, look at me, look at my appearance. I don't, I don't know, I don't know how that works. Um, and then one person said, direct brainwashing. And honestly, these kind of responses are so silly because People hear these things and they think that's what Christianity is all about, being narrow-minded or or just being all about politics or or being super judgmental and and super just wrapped up in sniffing out other people's sin. There was one person who gave an actual good answer. When she thinks of the word Christian, here's what she thinks of. She says, love, family. God is love, Christianity is love, and teaches love, and true Christians spread love and truth. God and everyone in his family is my family. It makes me sad beyond imagination that people don't know what Christianity actually is and can't tell who the real Christians are. And all of these answers make me a little annoyed, she said, which I totally agreed with. Guys, No matter what you've heard about Christianity your entire life, some of you guys have grown up in the church, some of you guys haven't, but no matter what your current perceptions of Christianity is, I want to give you the truth. I want to give you the gospel. The gospel is just the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the story of Jesus and his family. It's the story of God winning back his family from the beginning of time. It is the greatest story of all. It's the story of how we can be saved and not only how we can go to heaven one day, but how we can live a life right now that is full of God's goodness and his love and his mission and purpose. So what is the church? The church is the body of Jesus Christ. It's the family. It's not about a building. This building isn't a church in the sense of the true church. The church is us. It's the family of God. No matter how many gather in God's name, as long as they gather, we're the church. So if you go outside and you've got four friends walking down the street and your hearts are connected and you're telling people about Jesus and you're worshiping Jesus together, guess what? You're a church. You are part of the body of Christ. It's not about a building, it's about the heart. So today we're going to look at some people who got this right and some people who got it wrong. And the first question we need to ask in the sense of the war between darkness and light is whose side are you on? Now, just a little bit of setup in our story today, we're going to be looking at Jesus and the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were religious leaders. These were guys in the Jewish community who knew the law of Moses backwards and forwards. And it's interesting because I've researched how they started, and and the Pharisees actually kind of had the right heart when they started out because what they were thinking was, okay, it's God's laws that keep us close to him and keep us from disobeying him. So if it's the law that leads us to God, then what we need is if we want more God, we, we need more law is what they thought. And so the Pharisees kind of went down this strange path where they they added rules to the Bible and they came up with rules to help you follow the rules. So it wasn't just about the Ten Commandments or the laws of the Torah. It was extra man-made rules. It was things like on the Sabbath, if your donkey fell into a hole, you couldn't fetch your donkey out of the hole because it was on the Sabbath and it would be working. So you had to just let your donkey die. Things that kind of put a burden on other people. Now, who was Jesus? Jesus is the son of God. 
So the, the, the God who came from heaven to earth to live a perfect life for us. Jesus is amazing. He's who we've been studying. Jesus is the ultimate person. He's perfect. He's sinless. He loves us. He came not just to spread love and peace, but he came with the good news of how people can be saved. So why did the Pharisees hate Jesus? If you've been studying with us at any point, you know the Pharisees hated him. Well, for a couple reasons. They hated him because he said he was God. See, the Pharisees were righteous in their hearts, self-righteous in the sense that they were dedicated to Yahweh. They said, he is our God, we will follow him, we will keep his laws. But then Jesus shows up and says, hey, actually, I'm, I'm Yahweh. I'm the son of Yahweh. I am God. Just imagine, like, I know you're thinking, like, oh, Pharisees, like, come on, get on board. Like, just imagine we are here in church and some guy walks in, some homeless man off the street walks in and says, hey, actually, the God you're worshiping, yeah, it's me. We'd be, we'd be a little shocked. Jesus is this man, this traveling, often at times homeless, itinerant Jewish rabbi teaching these things that no one's ever heard before about who God is, and it's blowing people's minds, but the Pharisees are skeptical. They're like, this guy says he's God. Like, this isn't how God would come to us. God would come on a white horse as a king, not as a homeless man. They were, they were furious of Jesus' claim that he was God. Another thing they hated was Jesus broke man's law but kept God's law. The Pharisees had all these extra rules. Jesus wasn't having any of it. He would break the Pharisees' rules, which drove them crazy, but he's able to do it because he has the authority. He's God. They were jealous of his popularity. See, the Pharisees enjoyed a certain amount of popularity because in their communities, they were looked to as leaders. And so people looked up to them. They would write down what they said. Often the Pharisees were rabbis. They were teachers. And so Jesus Jesus comes and now he's saying things that no one has ever heard before and all of a sudden the Pharisees are losing their popularity and people aren't looking up to them so much. They're saying everyone will follow Jesus. We don't want them to follow him. We want them to follow us. Another thing that Jesus does is he exposes the sins of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees were really good at keeping the rules and on the outside looking like everything was together, but on the inside they were falling apart. They were full of jealousy and wickedness and deception. Maybe you know people like this who are very good on the outside making everyone think that they're a godly person, but on the inside you know their true heart. Jesus looked into their hearts and oftentimes he would read their minds and see the evil in them and he'd like call it out. He'd be like, hey, uh, you Pharisees, uh, this is what you're thinking. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, how does, how does he know that? Like they, they thought he was from the devil. Like they thought his powers came from demonic activity. They hated Jesus so much. In, in, in Matthew 23, 4, Jesus says, you Pharisees tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. See, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy he says, you guys are so full of yourselves and you have so many rules that are even beyond what God put. Like if you think the rules that God put would be enough, like there's so many rules. Like read Leviticus. I just read Leviticus for my devotions. It is gnarly. Like I was like, oh my gosh, I need to repent. Like it's so crazy in Leviticus. So there's all these Levitical laws of Moses. The Pharisees added extra. It's crazy. Jesus says, you guys are like you put these loads on people's backs that you're not willing to carry yourself. Think of the woman caught in adultery. They pull her before Jesus and they say, this woman has sinned. She slept with another man and Jesus says, you know what, whoever has not sinned at all, they can throw the first stone. And all the Pharisees are like, oh, 
oh, he's pointing out that we're sinners. And then he starts writing on the ground, and I don't know what he's writing, but many scholars believe it was the sins of the Pharisees. So they're like, man, we tried to expose this woman and trap Jesus, and now it's our sins that are under the microscope. Jesus called them blind guides. He says, you guys are like the blind leading the blind. Imagine you're stuck in a dark tunnel, and all of a sudden, this guy comes up, and he's like, hey, I'll guide you, but then you'll realize he's blind. Do you want a blind man leading you through a dark tunnel? He says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Basically, he's saying, you're like, you step into a graveyard and there's the headstones on the graves. You're like the cleanest, like most spanking, sparkling, clean headstones. Like, Like someone just got in and scrubbed those headstones so hard. But you know what? What's underneath the headstone? It's a dead body. That's what Jesus called them. Jesus was really good at ancient trash talk. I think it's fantastic. If you ever want to like learn how to diss people, look at Jesus, I guess. He saw the wickedness of their hearts and he exposed them. See, the whole relationship of Jesus and the Pharisees and whose side are you on is, it's really, are you on the side of religion or relationship? Because the thing is, rules aren't bad. Like, if I have a child and I have a fireplace, there will definitely be some rules. I'll be like, hey, child, the rule is don't go in the fireplace when there's a fire. When there's not a fire, eh, if Brooklyn's the mom, oh, she definitely will be. What am I talking about? When Brooklyn is the mom one day... (laughs) She will say, this is the rule, don't go in the fireplace. Um, so anyway, um, rules are not bad. They're there because loving parents don't want you to get burned. You know, the reality is a lot of times we have religion, but we don't have relationship. Or as I've said before, we have smoke, but no fire. I remember um, one time I was here, it was late at night. I was working late till like two in the morning, uh, working on some stuff for the church late night. And I, I see smoke coming down the hallway. It's just like billowing plumes of smoke and I was like oh my gosh and and I smelt the smoke and I was like this is terrible like I love this church I've been here since second grade yeah I've been here forever I went to school here I graduated here this is my church and now it's burning down and I'm here at two in the morning and there's no one here and I don't know what the number for the fire department is is it 912 I'm assuming yeah 911 is the police 912 is I don't know I'll call 912 later today but I was freaking out I ran where the smoke was coming from, thinking I'll throw water on the smoke, and I open up the door to the kitchen, and it's like nine guys from the men's ministry cooking bacon at like two in the morning. I'm just like, oh, there's a fire. They're like, oh, hey there, bud. Just make us some bacon. <laughs> they were like getting ready early for the men's breakfast, and the deal was there was a lot of smoke, so it looked like there was a fire, but really there was no actual fire. And that can be us in our life. We can have so much smoke religiously. People look at us and they say, oh man, that guy, he raises his hands in worship. Man, did you just see him pray? I heard he has rug burns on his knees from praying so hard. Like we, we, we look at certain people and we think they're so spiritual, but a lot of times it's a lot of smoke, but no fire. The Pharisees were all smoke, but no fire, because they had become so obsessed with their rules and religion that they had left God behind. And that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves now with Jesus on trial. So we're going to start in verse 19 of John chapter 18. You can follow along with our video. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered, I've always spoken publicly to everyone. All my teaching was done in the synagogues and in the temple where all the people come together. I have never said anything in secret. Why then do you question me? Question the people who heard me. Ask them what I told them. 
they know what I said. So right now we're dealing with hypocrites because these Pharisees have pulled Jesus into a false trial. This was actually illegal what they did. For people so obsessed with the rules, they did this shady thing where they pulled Jesus out in the middle of the night for a false trial, which they knew that if the public knew about, it would never fly. So Jesus says, I did nothing in secret. Like everything I did was out in the open. You all saw my miracles, but they don't care. They want him dead. So they did their trial in darkness and secret. Now notice the difference. Jesus does everything out in the open, but the Pharisees do everything in darkness and secrecy. If we are on the side of religion, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be living our lives, going to church and acting religious, but then there's going to be a lot of darkness and secrecy, a lot of things we do behind closed doors, a lot of lies to our parents, a lot of things that hurt other people. But if we follow Jesus, we do as he do or did. We do as he did. We do everything out in the open. He spoke nothing of himself. He, he only served the Lord. And he def- they defined him by what they thought he did wrong. That's what religious people do. They define people by what they do wrong. They look at someone and say, oh, he's a liar. She's an adulterer. He's a bad friend. He's unreliable. She's a gossip. They look at people, and instead of looking at them as broken people just like you and me, they define them by the trait that they hate the most about them. That's what religious people often do, ignoring their own sins and nitpicking the sins of other people and defining them by their sin. They shut their eyes to the truth. We're going to pick up in verse 20. I have never said anything in secret. Why then do you question me? Question the people who heard me. Ask them what I told them. They know what I said. How dare you talk like that to the high priest? If I have said anything wrong, tell everyone here what it was. But if I am right in what I have said, why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him, still tied up, to Caiaphas, the high priest. So there's something to me that's just so ridiculously relevant about this slap. And it's in the Bible. Like it's, it's not just something that that actor in that video decided to do to throw in that slap for dramatic effect. It literally says in the text, this guard slaps Jesus across the face. Here's what's incredible. Jesus, what is he doing? Why is he on trial? Because he's trying to save the world. Who's a part of the world? That high priest, the guard, Jesus is trying to save them. And he gets slapped in the face and accused by them. Imagine you are walking down the street and you see a man lying in a ditch and you reach out your hand to try to save him and he slaps you in the face and spits on you. That's what Jesus is dealing with. When that guard slapped Jesus, he didn't just slap a man, he slapped the face of God. But we have to remember Jesus is in control and he has so much control here. I mean, imagine, he, he could have fought back. He could have, he could have shot the guy with lasers out of his eyes. He could have called down fireballs from heaven. He could have opened up the earth and swallowed the guard whole. He could have completely done that. But he has so much restraint. He says, I'm not gonna fight back because I need to go to the cross. Because it is worth it 
to save this guard and this high priest and you and you and you and you. He went through not only that slap, but much, much worse, as we will see in future chapters. It reminds me of one time I was watching this little girl and it was at a park, and she was sitting on her dad's knee at the park, and the dad was speaking very kindly to his daughter, and then out of nowhere, she hits him in the face, and just, you can see the dad was kind of like, what the heck, but like, it's just something little kids do. They're weird sometimes, but you know what? For that girl to be able to slap her dad in the face like that, the dad had to be willing to let her get close enough to do it. That's the reality. See, when Jesus came to earth, he knew he was going to get slapped in the face. And not only that, he knew he was going to be slapped in a lot of other ways. He would be hurt and hit and and struck down by people's words and, and people's anger and people's gossip. All the things that we hate when people do to us at our schools, Jesus endured so much more. Just like the dad was willing to let the child get close enough to hit him, Jesus was willing to come down from heaven where it's safe and no one can hit him, down to earth in human form. He was willing to get close enough to us to endure the pain that we give him. And I hear people all the time say, you know, I don't need God. I'm independent. I just live my life. And in reality, we forget it's God that gives us breath. And yet he allowed us to get close to him, knowing that we would make him go through pain. God is amazing. I love these stories about Jesus. The people who slap Jesus in the face every day are haters of truth. And I'll tell you, even as a Christian, I have done this. I have hit Jesus with my words and with my actions and with choosing to sin when I knew something was wrong. People do this every day. And this reminder tells me and reminds me that I don't want to be a part of it. We're going to continue in verse 28. Early in the morning, Jesus was taken from Caiaphas' house to the governor's palace. The Jewish authorities did not go inside the palace, for they wanted to keep themselves ritually clean in order to be able to eat the Passover meal. So Pilate went outside to them and asked, What do you accuse this man of? We would not have brought him to you if he had not committed a crime. Then you yourselves take him and try him according to your own law. We are not allowed to put anyone to death. This happened in order to make come true what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he would die. So what we see here is the beginning of something where the way, the truth, and the life dies on the cross. And we see the Pharisees are so hypocritical. They're publicly breaking, or they're publicly keeping little rules. I don't know if you guys caught that, but they're saying that they, um, let me see what it says. It says in verse 28, um, but now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace. They're so concerned about these little rules. They don't want to enter the palace after Jesus because they'd be unclean ceremonially, and they'd have to go wash themselves, and it'd be this big ordeal. They were so concerned with being holy on the outside, and yet they're privately breaking giant rules, like don't lie, don't falsely accuse, don't murder. These men are so wrapped up in their hypocrisy. And can we not also be this way, guys? Can we not also publicly be so concerned, you know, when you're at church, I better not say a bad word. I better not hang around that person because I'm at church and people might see me. But as soon as we leave this place, 
the people that we surround ourselves with, the things that we do, the ways that we lie to our parents. And I mean, I've done the research. It's like, I think uh, 80% of teenagers regularly admit to lying to their parents. Not to their parents, obviously, but to these surveys. They say, yeah, we lie all the time. Like, what my parents don't know doesn't hurt them. I just, I, I don't tell them things because I want to live my life the way that we do. We constantly are being hypocritical and breaking God's rules because we think we know better. And it's not just about the rules, it's about love. If we love God, we will keep his commandments. Why are the Pharisees this way? Why didn't they give him to Pilate? Because they were concerned about being the ones to kill him themselves. They didn't want to pick up stones and stone Jesus to death because they didn't want people to blame them because they knew it was wrong. So they're thinking, if we can pass Jesus off to a Roman, if we can get him into a trial with the Roman authorities, then we'll be free. Then it's their problem and not ours. They knew it was wrong, but they wanted someone else to get the blame. Sometimes we can fear the scandal more than the sin. Are you in sin today, and yet you are not concerned about how it affects God, how it breaks his heart, but you're more concerned about what would happen if you got found out, if your parents found out what you're doing, if your teachers or friends found out what you're doing. You're you're just so concerned about the scandal and not about the way that it breaks the heart of God. That is a trap that so many people have fallen into. We need to be concerned about what hurts the heart of God. Because his heart is the only heart that matters. It's the heart that loves us. It's the heart that was willing to die for us. It was the heart that wouldn't go on living without us. That was not willing to live in a world without his people. And so he went to the cross We're dealing with the war between darkness and light. And the Bible says that those who are in darkness hates light because it exposes them. Guys, listen. You may think right now with the things that you're doing in your life that you're trying to keep hidden. You're thinking that you're fighting a battle to save yourself. But really, you're fighting a battle against yourself. Because the longer that you remain in your sin, the more destruction your life will eventually have. Jesus calls us into the light. When you hear sometimes, sometimes you're convicted, maybe today, even right now, you feel convicted, and it sounds like sirens. It sounds like a police car coming after you to catch you when you're wrong and expose you. But the sirens that we hear, the sirens that we feel in our heart through the Holy Spirit, that's not police sirens, it's an ambulance siren. It's God coming to heal us, not to destroy us. And punishment is a good thing when it leads to restoration. They wanted him dead because darkness hates the light. We're going to pick it back up in verse 33. Jesus is going to come before Pilate for questioning. Pilate went back into the palace and called Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Does this question come from you? Or have others told you about me? Do you think I'm a Jew? It was your own people and the chief priests who handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would fight 
to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. No. My kingdom does not belong here. Are you a king, then? You say that I am a king. I was born and came into the world for this one purpose. To speak about the truth. Whoever belongs to the truth listens to me. <sighs> and what is truth? That's one of the most epic lines, I think, in this story. Is Pilate standing there looking at the one who literally calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, if you are a friend of the truth, you're a friend of me. If you seek the truth, you seek me. And Pilate just looks at him and goes, what even is truth? Pilate has bought into already just this, this, this moral lack of truth. This idea that there's no absolute truth. That's where Pilate's at. He's this jaded Roman uh, governor who's just, he's seen so much. He's seen the world fall apart. He's seen so much sin. He's just, he's looking at Jesus and he's like, what is truth? What is that even, what even is that? Truth is what you make. Like you, you just make your own truth. So for Pilate, he's thinking I'm the Roman governor. I'm rich. I'm wealthy. That's my truth. But Jesus, how can you claim that you're the truth? That's what people are trying to sell all over the world today, especially in colleges, that there's no truth. And it's just about how we feel. How do you feel? What's your truth? What do you want to express in this world? What do you want to believe is right? What do you want to believe is wrong? What's more convenient for you to be able to live your life the way that you want to so that you can accept any sin and say, what is truth? This is my truth. This is good. Is it good for me to be that child and look at the fireplace and say, it is good for me to run into this fireplace and it is true? No, we all know that universally, fire is bad to run into. That is a universal truth. But what the world is trying to do is trying to make you guys ask the question, what is truth? What's right? What's wrong? There is no right or wrong. Do what makes you feel good. And that's why we need to remember the kingdom of heaven because we say in this group, if Jesus is king, that changes everything. What does Jesus say? They ask him, are you a king? And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. In the Garden of Eden, that's where truth died because man bought into the lie that life is about making yourself happy and pleasing yourself. But we're about to see the resurrection of truth. And when Jesus rose from the dead, guys, it was like the kingdom of God being born again into the world. Just this amazing idea. Like, I just think of heaven, and it's like, like what do we think heaven is? Like, I Googled heaven, and, like, the only pictures that came up were just clouds. So apparently all we, as humanity, or at least according to Google, we think heaven is, is it's just, like, it's a cloudy place. It's like Seattle. Like, there's just so many clouds everywhere. And, you know, we, we tend to think of heaven in the sense of, like, at least growing up I did, I thought, like, okay, we've got earth, and then somewhere up in, like, the sky is heaven, and then I guess, like, either directly underneath the planet Earth is hell, or we went to space and we couldn't find it, so, like, hell has to, like, be in the center of the Earth. Guys, the way that I've come to think about heaven and Earth is this idea of God's space and man's space. Think about the Garden of Eden. Think about the beginning. That is a place. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the Earth. So we've got planet Earth 
And we've got heaven, and, and heaven is where God dwells. So on earth, God is there with man. And so it's this place where heaven and earth touch, where God's realm, where God lives, God's place of dwelling, and man come together and they live together. And then it's the lie, it's the lie of Satan that tears heaven and earth apart. And now you've got the physical realm of earth and the spiritual realm of heaven and hell. When Jesus, you guys know that song, um, How He Loves Us, that we sing a lot? I love that line, when heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss, that's at the cross. So at the cross, that is where heaven and earth touch again. So think of the kingdom of heaven. Stop thinking of it as this distant, far-off cloud land that's so intangible. It just seems like so, like, like, what does that even mean? Heaven is where God is. The Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth at the end of Revelation. So it's not just fluffy cloud land off in the distance. It's this kingdom. It's this planet. It's, it's the new Jerusalem. It's a city. Like, I'm excited. I'm excited. Like, I think heaven's going to have fields and, and rivers and, and, and streams and waves to surf and cliffs to dive off of. Like, it's, it's going to be way better than this. It's going to be amazing. So... In the kingdom of heaven, that's where God exists. That's where God works. It's not just distant cloudland. It's this spiritual realm. Then we've got earth. Before Jesus comes to it, what do we have on earth? We've got sin, death, violence, hate. We've, we've got all of these things that tear people apart, all of this sin. And then the cross comes, and heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. So living for the kingdom of heaven, here's what it means. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, what he's trying to say is it's not of this world's system. Because think about it, Pilate. Pilate says, Jesus, are you a king? Why is he asking? Because he's, he's wondering. If he's a king, I know how kings work. I know how worldly systems work. I am a governor. The way that I got to power was through violence. My soldiers came, and we wiped out another army, and now I'm in power. So he's looking at Jesus, and he's like, are you a king? Do you have an army, Jesus? You gonna, you gonna like, pull some kind of stunt? You, you gonna start a revolution, Jesus? Because I'm hearing rumors. And Jesus says, no, 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 listen. I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. He's saying it's not of this earthly system because Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, he says, if my kingdom were of this earth, then my disciples would grab swords and they would attack you and they would overthrow you. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's a completely different system. Jesus is actually here to conquer the world. When he comes, it, it is what they're afraid of. They're afraid that Jesus is gonna be this guy who conquers them. That is what Jesus plans to do, but his weapon is not a sword, it's love. It's his death on the cross, it's the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is able to conquer the world through love, and now every nation in the world has Christians in it, and the church is growing. So for you to live for the kingdom of God, what it means on heaven as it is on earth, or on earth as it is in heaven, is when you love people, when you treat people like they're better than you, when you wash the dishes for your mom, when you help your little sibling with homework, when you're truthful and you decide to not lie, when you respect your parents, when you go out and share the gospel, what you're doing is you are spreading 
the kingdom of heaven to this sinful world. And the Bible says that one day, this will spread to all of this. And God's kingdom will fully be here. And Daniel, in Daniel 20, or in 2.44, it says, in the days of the, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It'll crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it itself will last forever. In Revelation 11.15, it says, then the seventh angel sounded. This is talking about things that will happen in the future. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Guys, I just, I, one of the biggest things I want to teach you guys in this youth group is not just like, yeah, get saved, say a prayer, try to live a good life, die, and go to cloud land. What I really want you guys to get is that God's kingdom is real, and it's powerful, and it's already on the move, and one day it'll fully take over. But for right now, we're a part of the process. And every small act of obedience is a building brick in the kingdom. Every act of love is a building brick of the kingdom. You can live your life today after church just by going out in that courtyard and loving people for the kingdom of God. So as we finish up, let's look at verse 38. Then Pilate went back outside to the people and said to them, I cannot find any reason to condemn him. According to the custom you have, I always set free a prisoner for you during the Passover. Do you want me to set free for you the king of the Jews? They answered him with a shout. Barabbas was abandoned. So what we're seeing is Jesus is brought before this crowd. Pilate says he's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. He's a, he's a perfect man. He says he has a kingdom, but he's not trying to overthrow me. So at least, I mean, he's probably delusional, but he's done nothing wrong. I find no fault in him. And they bring out this criminal, this guy who was wanted for violent acts of crime named Barabbas. And they had this custom during Passover where they'd release a prisoner. So Pilate's thinking, obviously you guys probably want Jesus to be released, not this crazy, murderous, political, revolutionary Barabbas, but the people, they're led by the Pharisees. Those wicked Pharisees are pointing them to say, we want Barabbas, set him free, send Jesus to the cross. And I don't know if this is weird to you guys, but there's a time in every pastor's life where you realize that somebody else can teach something way better than you. This section has been taught so well by a guy named Judah Smith. Uh, he gave an amazing portion of a message just to this very thing. And I was watching it earlier this week when I was studying and I was like, I don't want to try to recreate this. I don't want to try to like be somebody I'm not. I'm not him. I'm not his style. He did it so well. I'm going to just play for you guys the way that he taught it because it just blesses me so much. So I'm going to play this, and then we're going to wrap up and get in small groups. So here it is.
we see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is, this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper. What what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We, We want Barabbas. Yeah, give us Barabbas. They give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform, welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is, but all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience in Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, for you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of a heavenly Father. grace but now that I'm in this deep dark place of bondage 
I'm gonna work hard to get myself out. What? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you gonna do? I'm gonna shake myself free. Stop it! No, you won't! You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin and temptation. You will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own marriage, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me, say, no, son, let me have it. Let me have your sin. Let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No. God, I I'm so ashamed. Give me your shame. What if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh, God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins, son. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed. Or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high? so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive. Let me have your sin, son. Okay. And I give him my sin. Let's stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, go son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off thinking that we were gonna set ourselves free? It's still Jesus, it'll always be Jesus. 
it'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If His blood is sufficient for your salvation, His blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough! Love that. Really all I can do after that is pray. So good. God, we thank you. We thank you, God, so much that you love us, that you are the way, the truth, and the light. We're constantly caught in this war between our flesh and the spirit. God, I thank you that you died on the cross so that we could have life so that we could have truth, truth and life that were stolen away from us by the enemy. God, we thank you that we can have life, that we can have a way to live that brings us closer to the God that loves us and made us. I pray if there's anyone here today who's suffering, like I have at times in my life with just the heart of a Pharisee, just trying to keep all the rules on the outside, even being very religious in some ways, but then struggling on the inside with so many doubts and sins and struggles, and just being afraid to even talk to anyone about it because they, they, they just want to seem so holy and perfect. God, help us to remember that this church, this group, is not a place where we come to show off our holiness, but it's a, come, it's a place where we come, Lord, to say that we are sinners, we're sick, We need a doctor. You're the doctor, Lord. This is the hospital. Help us to remember that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for everything that you've done for us. In your name, amen.